chapter 9, um, verse 1 to 16? 7. <laughs> if I've been looking at it this week, that might help, right? <laughs> Yeah, 1 to 7. Isaiah chapter 9. One to seven. And if you're new, maybe it's your first time in a church and you've never kind of seen this stuff or experienced this stuff, you'll see a red Bible in front of you and it's page 694. So text says from verse 1, chapter 9, Isaiah, verse 1. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For it's in the day of Midian's defeat, you have scattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If the text ever deserved a boom, I reckon it's that one, right? Um, I'm just going to sort this stuff out because I'm getting fussy in my old age. Now, not only do I have a particular stand I like, I also have a mic that I prefer. So, sorry, Evan. But anyway, if you want to just chat to one another for a brief couple of seconds, maybe ask the wonder of Clive coming back from Australia, and today we started the service five minutes late. Maybe you could ask each other the question, has Australia changed him? I tell you what, normally shutting people up is the issue. <laughs> Never before has it been getting people to talk that's been the problem. You're wonderfully well behaved as I got that done. 
So tonight we're continuing our series um, entitled Reasons for Hope, the Faithful God um, of Isaiah. And we're in the third message in this particular series. You should see a flyer on the front if you want to take it home, stick it on your fridge, or hand it, even better, hand it out to people and invite them to some of the series. But we're going through um, the book of Isaiah, not, not chapter by chapter, because it's, 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 it's quite a long book, 66 chapters. And Isaiah, um, the whole way that it's done is that he was like a, a preacher, a prophet who would preach. He would stand on, on, on a box somewhere in, in the temple precincts or, 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 or in, somewhere in general, and he would preach these messages of challenging the governments and systems of the time to remember others, remember justice, remember the poor, the marginalized, and the weak, and would call people back to the God that they had forgotten and forsaken. So the book itself is quite sporadic in the way it's put together. I think we discussed that a couple of weeks ago. So as a consequence, rather than going through chapter by chapter, because Isaiah kind of repeats himself throughout, we're going to look at particular themes that we find throughout it. And tonight we're looking at this idea of the coming king. And I'm so grateful for Ellie and the band for leading us in some songs that just so beautifully speak of something as this king that we're going to be looking at um, tonight. So I want to ask you a question at the start um, of the message. Who's your king? I'm not sure if grammatically it should be who is your king or who's your king. I'm not sure, but the question's there. And I'm going to come back to this later on and throughout the message, but I want to ask you that at the start to get you thinking before we go on. Who's your king? Who has authority in your life? Who are you listening to? Who are you putting first? Who's your king? Boom. So I want to tell you about um, two two of my friends, uh, Josh and Sim. Josh is on the left looking very smug in his suit. The reason I put that photo up is, one, because I'm going to get him to actually listen to this message. Uh, Josh is quite a staunch atheist and disagrees with most of the things I say. We've had some amazing conversations um, about Jesus. But he would agree with me if I told you that that smugness on his face there sums up something of his personality. So that's why I'm showing that picture. And Sim is one of my good friends to the right. He's, he's a Sikh. There's got to be a joke there, because often we would go to the pub together, a Christian, atheist, and a Sikh, and we would chat about different things in regards to faith. But the reason I show you these guys is that I remember a conversation vividly uh, five years ago, maybe, and we were sitting down in spoons um, and just chatting. For some reason, our conversations are not normally this intelligent. This makes it sound like we have really intelligent conversations. But they were around, like, political theory. And we, and we were talking um, about... I was mentioning the fact that I was a staunch socialist and I was passionate about democracy, that, 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 that governance of society is done by community. Everyone has a voice. We're all able to contribute to how we are governed as a people. But I remember Josh um, being quite provocative. He's going to love the fact. If someone becomes a Christian tonight, I'm going to tell him that as well, that his, his contribution in the sermon helped them to become a Christian. How cool would that be? Um, but one of the things that he, he said is that he believes the best form of governments is a dictatorship, right? And if you're living like me, I sat there and went, well, the only dictators I know are people like Hitler would be the classic example, right? Stalin, Idi Amin in Uganda, um, Jim Kong-un in, in North Korea at the moment. These were the kind of people that were coming to my mind. And I thought, how can you possibly say a dictatorship is the best form of governments? The, these people have caused all kinds of havoc in their nations and societies. But then political theory talks about this idea of a benevolent dictator. A dictator who puts the, the, the needs and desires of their society first, of their people first, looks out for them first and above all else. And I started to talk to Josh more about this concept. And he said, well, obviously, Ross, I'm not saying that we should have a dictatorship here in Britain because the problem with dictatorships, like all political theories, is people are involved. And as soon as you have a person as a dictator, 
you know they're bound to make mistakes. You know they're bound to put their own agenda first. You know they're bound to make selfish decisions. So conceptually, a dictatorship could be the best form of governance. One leader doing what's best for the people that he rules. But yet the reality is, in a broken world, that's never going to be the case. There is no king or powerful authority or leader who's ever going to be lead as purely and as beautifully as that concept would maybe allow for. But yet what Josh didn't realize in our conversation and what we'll explore tonight is maybe there is one leader, one benevolent dictator, one person who has all authority over this world and everything we know and in fact can lead perfectly where every single human, every single leader, every single power and authority has failed before because he would not make the same mistakes that we do. Amen? And we're going to explore something of this particular person um, in a bit. But before we do, what's really interesting about this concept of, of um, bad leaders, bad dictators, kings who are flawed, is that the Israelite people, the people that we look at in our Old Testaments, if it's your first time here in church tonight, the Old Testament tells this story of these people, the Jews, the Israelite people, and how God takes them on this journey. And the Israelite people know something of bad kings, of bad leaders, of bad authorities, They know something of what it is to have these horrific dictators in power. And these leaders, these kings, bring them into a place of darkness. Why? Because they take them away from following the living God. And as a consequence, the Israelites, as we come to our text tonight, are in this place of darkness. Everything is in uproar. They've got this superpower, the Assyrians, closing in on them. And everything is in darkness. Hope for the future is kind of falling away. They're not sure of what the future holds. They've, they've got all kinds of political problems going on. The society is in disarray and decay in so many different areas. Darkness is a relevant metaphor. And that's later contrasted with light. But the Israelite people know something of these leaders. And that's not to say that somehow they're absolved of all responsibility, because actually it's just the leader's fault. It would be nice, wouldn't it? I mean, Clive and I make mistakes, and it would be nice to blame us all the time, but sometimes we have to take responsibility as well. And I think the Israelite people were just as guilty of following blindly these leaders and falling into sin in so many different areas of their lives when they knew they were doing so. But yet they know what it is to have something of these bad kings. Isaiah 8, verse 21 to 22, if you've got your Bibles. Just before our text in chapter 9, it says this. They will pass through the land, this is in regards to the Israelites, greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will curse their king and their gods. If you're the kind of person that gets really hangry, and when you, get, when you, don't, you want food, you'll certainly know what that feels like. They will turn their faces upward, or they will look to the earth, but will see only distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. Not a particularly joyful beginning to the message, but this is the context that the Israelite people are dealing with. They've got these bad kings, these bad leaders, these bad people in authority who've led them away from God, and therefore their current position in life seems completely hopeless. They are surrounded by darkness. Some of the bad leaders they had, a king called Ahaz, um, who's directly referred to in this particular text, Isaiah would have lived around his reign, was about 20, and he was a nut job. I mean, this guy made awful decisions and then even, even a great king like King David, someone that was held as after God's own heart, committed adultery with another man's woman 
and then ended up sending him, her husband, to the front line of the battlefield, knowing full well he would be killed. Therefore, he could kind of get away with murder, but not actually doing it directly himself and cover up his sin of committing adultery. That was their best king. And that was some of the mistakes and failures he made. The prophets throughout the Old Testament are constantly coming back to leaders and authorities, and they are so harsh on them. It makes me terrified to be a minister. They get absolutely nailed in almost every single chapter. What are you doing? What are, where are the poor and the marginalized? You are leading your people into, into all kinds of promiscuity and sin. Stop it. Sort your lives out, mate. That's maybe the message translation, but that's something of what is said in regards to the, the way these, these kings and leaders are leading their people. And then Israelites also, um, in their time of need, when this Assyrian superpower are kind of closing on them, rather than seeking God for help and wisdom, rather than seeking God for counsel, they end up going to the Egyptians. Pharaoh, the king of, of, of the Egyptians, if you like. Bear in mind, that's the very same nation that previously had enslaved them for many years that God rescued, for them, rescued them from, and yet they're going back to this particular king, this particular nation, being another great superpower of the day, to help them in their fight against the Assyrians. Why didn't they turn to God? Why didn't they turn to their king, the all-powerful almighty that they had at the beck and call in the center of their community, but yet they relied on another bad king? And he gets, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 2, if you've got your Bibles. Just to show you how, how Isaiah and kind of God feel about this. Who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my counsel? To take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the protection of Pharaoh should become your shame. And the shelter in the shadow of Egypt, your humiliation. He didn't go to God, but instead went to another king who led them into darkness. And I want to pause for a second with this theme of, of bad kings. And I want to throw that back out at you. Who are the bad kings in your life? Who are the kings in your life? Who um, has authority in your life? Who dictates the way you think and the things you say? Who ultimately leads you in, in, into darkness? And it's very easy to come back and say, well, well Ross, mate, I, I, I make my own decisions. I'm completely free of outside influence. But I'm not sure that's ever the case. I'm not sure there's not ever kings or, or, or powers or authorities who don't dictate the way we think. And I'm not just talking about people here, but maybe things, maybe philosophies. So let's, maybe a, a king in your life could be the media. Things like social media, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Things like the TV and, 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 and the news on TV or, or DVDs or series, whatever it may be. How often do these, these things that we're so unaware of, these powers, influence the way we think and the things we do dictate the way we think and the things that we say. I make a joke about the fact that I can probably quote more friends than I can sometimes quote the Bible. But that's, but that's, that's sometimes a reality. That's worrying that actually so much of the philosophies that are espoused as part of that show that I love so much are firmly ingrained in the way I think and the way I behave. How often do these kings have authority over us? Facebook. Facebook. I, I love Facebook, but it's so narcissistic, isn't it? And, and so often, it, it, it's how we define ourselves. How many likes do we get on Facebook for our latest profile picture? That's how we take definition. That's how we define our identity. Rather than looking to Jesus and for finding fulfillment in that, it's, did I pull the right pout? <laughs> Was enough of my jawline in the, in the photo? Did they, could they see my receding hairline? You know? <laughs> I think I just revealed what I thought recently about my profile picture. 
I obviously never do that. <laughs> so who are the kings in, in your life? Maybe, um, maybe another... Actually, actually, no, I want to comment this a bit further, sorry. Um, in, in regards to this way of thinking and, and, and areas dictating our thought, I want to say to us as a younger generation, my generation, we are massively influenced by these things. We are massively influenced by our culture. The way we interpret the Bible comes as a consequence of being influenced by the media and other things. So I, ra- I bring a challenge to us tonight. How much are we being influenced by, by media, by these things, by our culture? But then I also bring a challenge to an older generation who often say the younger generation are far too influenced by culture and media and say, but you are also just as influenced by your upbringing and by your culture and by the way you were brought up. So I bring a challenge to you. When you come to the Bible, when we come to read these texts, how much of what we're reading is influenced by these presuppositions that we might not even be aware of, by the way culture has shaped us, by these outward sources, by these other kings and authorities and powers that are influencing the way we think and the things we do and ultimately bringing us away from God. None of us come to the biblical text without some kind of worldview or presupposition from a particular culture. The Bible is full of culture. That's what makes it so difficult to interpret at times. Who are the kings in our lives? What about maybe someone you admire? You know, people we hold up on pedestals, um, maybe great thinkers, maybe um, it used to be boy bands, but I think we've moved beyond that a little bit, right? But, but you've got maybe a famous sports star or, 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 or there's someone that you just admire. And actually, the question I maybe want you to ask tonight is, how much authority do they have in your life? What they say goes. Are you listening more to that particular king or are you listening more... To, to, to God, to, to, to how you're identified by him, to what he says about your life and the way you're meant to be going and the things you're meant to be doing. Or maybe a, a king in your life is a group of friends, a group of friends who you love, but in fact you realize after a while that you become someone else to fit in that particular group. That over a period of time, the way you think, the things you say, the things you do are all defined by that particular group of people. That you won't go beyond that because they're your mates. They're the, it's the lads. You know, it's the girls, the group of friends that you define yourselves by. And in fact, they become a greater authority in your life than anyone else. They dictate more of what you do and how you think than anyone else. And ultimately, they bring you away from the God that you love and you worship. Who are the kings in your life? Who has authority? Whose voices are you listening to? Because you know what's beautiful about this, this text is that in this place of darkness, the Israelites have hope that they have hope in this place in which they can't see hope of this coming king. And this coming king is going to be a king of light, the king who brings light. And they describe this king in in, in beautiful ways. If you have your Bible with you, uh, we're looking at chapter 9. The words, the phrases, the titles that are given to this particular coming king. The king who brings light is a wonderful counselor. Alec Matir, who um, wrote an incredible commentary on Isaiah. He's one of those men where I actually got taught by him at London School of Theology, the best theological college um, in, in, in the world, Clive. And, um, and, he, and he, came, he sat down and he, he just said to me, he looked at us and he said, my dear children. That's how he opened the lecture. He was just the most beautiful of men. And I remember I went to library and watched him as, as I walked in. And he was sitting there with the Hebrew Old Testament open on the table and translating it directly into English in order to teach the next lecture. 
I'm like, dude, I can't even read the English that these guys are translating, let alone the Hebrew into another language. This guy was an incredible mind. And he talks about the fact that actually this translation of wonderful counselor is more like wonder of counselor, wonder of a counselor. That, that this king who brings light, his wisdom and, and, and advice would be sought beyond all else because their counsel is perfect. Their counsel is pure. Their counsel is the greatest wisdom you could possibly take for your life. King Ahaz made some stupid decisions, incredibly bad counsel. Solomon, in his earthly wisdom, had the worst of counsel. But yet we can be promised that this king who brings light will have the most beautiful, the most perfect of counsel, that you will wonder at the counsel of this king who brings light. This king who brings light is defined as a mighty God, which is quite provocative, actually. This person who's meant to be the Messiah that we'll talk about in a moment is defined as mighty God. An everlasting father, father in the sense of compassion, love, grace, mercy, as a father loves their children, but then at the same time disciplines their children. But then is everlasting in the sense that their throne is everlasting, not like going through constant king after king after king, but there is one king and his throne will be everlasting. And the way he treats his people will be through grace, love, and kindness, like a father nurtures and cares for his children. He will be the prince of peace. This king who brings light will be the prince of peace. In, in Hebrew, the word is salem which is talking about this idea of personal peace. That in fact, it's more, to be, it's more about being whole and complete than anything else. But then it's a prince, he's a prince of peace. So it's not just personal peace. We're talking about the king who brings light. His kingdom will be one of peace. So everyone within this kingdom will have this wholeness, will have this completeness, this peace that will be found nowhere else. In this kingdom of light, this king who brings light will rule in a way that puts justice first. Justice will be part of this kingdom that the marginalized, the weak, the poor, the hungry, the lonely will be welcomed. Will be given the same rights and the same voice as everyone else. That injustice will be stamped out. That righteousness will be part of this kingdom. Righteousness is a fancy way of saying to be made right with God. That holiness, essentially, being in one of character with God, holy will be part of this particular people, the king who brings light. His kingdom looks so different to the kingdom of this world. So I want to pause for a brief second. And we talked about earlier about the um, Israelites, and we talked about the Assyrians and the Babylonians, these superpowers that were enclosing in on them. Flash forward to the time of Jesus. And in this time, the Israelite people um, were, were being, um, what's the word? They'd been captured by the Romans, essentially. The Romans were governing them as a people, as a nation. And during this time, they started reading this text of Isaiah chapter 9, this idea of this, this coming king, this king who brings light. They saw it as the Messiah. This person who would save the Jewish people, who would rescue them from their Roman oppressors, would come in on, on a mighty horse as this powerful, strong king, would get rid of the Romans, would, would defeat all Israelite enemies, would free them, would reign as David had once reigned, and it would be beautiful and it would be perfect. That's the image they had in their mind, this wonderful Messiah, and yet, this is where we come to Jesus. Because Jesus, as we know, is the fulfillment of this text, Right? He is the king who brings light, but yet Jesus did things so differently. In fact, what we see in Jesus is someone who was humble. He didn't come riding in and killing a bunch of people, but, but was born amongst animals in the most lowly of state. We see a king who rides into the temple precincts on a donkey. Bear in mind, it's the cult. It's the foal. Of, it's a baby donkey 
Well, I mean, you would look, if you've seen men in the Middle East riding on donkeys, you look pretty stupid because you're kind of, you're massive and this donkey is tiny. But we're not even talking about a regular donkey. We're talking about a baby donkey. Not riding in on a great war horse ready for victory and, and, and to fight, but humbly on, 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 a, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This Jesus didn't come to kill the enemies of the Israelite people, but in fact, he called them to love them. The very people they hated, the very people they hated them, he called them to love them. He didn't come to, to kill and rid them of the Roman oppressors, but in fact, he placed himself in a position in which he was put upon a cross. The, the, the death of, of a common criminal was nailed, bloody and weak. And in that very act, turned the tables of history and accomplished the greatest victory this world has ever seen. He didn't rid the world of, he didn't rid the Israelites of their Roman oppressors, but he created a way for life beyond death. Right? I mean, that's at the crux of what we believe, that there's hope beyond death, that darkness doesn't have to be the end, that in fact light can exist in this darkness. The king that brings light changed everything, but not in power and in might, but in weakness, in frailty, in pain, in a way that was disgusting for the Greeks who looked upon him. And we're so guilty sometimes of thinking just about Jesus' death and resurrection and ignoring his life, because his life was beautiful, because in his life, he painted the picture of this kingdom of light, not a kingdom of darkness. It's why the Christian faith can sometimes look so weird in the world, right? It's why we can look so weird when we do things. Because when light meets darkness, it stands out and it's obvious. It's different. And the king who brings light brings light into the world. His kingdom is a kingdom of light. And you see these moments breaking in. When others talk about hate, Jesus talks about love. When others talk about fighting and war, Jesus talks about peace. When others talked about rejection, Jesus talked about acceptance. When others talked about exclusivity, Jesus talked about inclusivity. A kingdom of love, a kingdom of welcome, of mercy, grace, peace, humility, kindness, joy. All these qualities that we expect in the future when we'll be with Jesus for eternity are being lived in the present, in his act. Jesus of Nazareth, the king who brings light, lived a way that was radically different to the world and caused us to live the same way. And the best truth is, and it's only made the most beautiful reality I find when I'm standing there at a funeral talking to people, Because it's in those moments that you go, do you know what? There is life beyond death. There is hope that one day this king will return. And the present darkness that surrounds us will no longer be dark, but he will be raining down light. I don't know if you ever noticed, but even in the light that we have in our world, there's always shadows. Can you imagine light with no shadow, with no darkness? Jesus will return and restore this broken world to the beauty that he originally intended. And we will be with him for eternity. And we will be like him, for we will see him. And there will be no more crying or pain, for the old order of things will have passed away. And you know, sometimes when we prepare sermons, Clive will tell you this as well, I'm sure, and, and those who you preach regularly, um, you get so used to doing it, and it becomes, a, it becomes a job. Many of you have your jobs, you just get through the grind, right? I've got another sermon to pray. Oh, I've got another sermon. And, and, and you do it, and sometimes you do it because you know you need to do it, and you listen to God, and you pray, and I was asking God this week, what do you want? And if I'm honest with you, I came to the message this week not necessarily feeling it. I wasn't overly excited about what I was bringing. I mean, I was, I was excited by the kind of concept God had given me, and I liked that, and I thought, that's pretty cool, right? I can say that concept. People might like that. 
But it wasn't until earlier, until just before standing up here and in singing some of the songs, that I began to realize the reality of what I'm actually saying this evening. Because it does not feel like sometimes life is just so average and normal. And yet what we're being called to is living in a kingdom of light and trusting in a king who has our needs perfectly in hand. Then in fact our lives should look radically different to a certain extent. That this light will, will break into the darkness in our everyday lives, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, in a small acts of life. That we have the chance to make a difference for this Jesus. That life should be an adventure. Why is it that the Christian faith is sometimes so seemingly boring to many? That it's not attractive. People should want to be flooding through these doors to find out about this king who brings life. What are we saying? What are we showing people that's not bringing out the beauty of this king that we worship and the kingdom that he has begun to establish on this earth, this adventure he's given us? So who's your king? This is my king. We're going to um, watch a video, and you know, when I when I looked at that image and, and preparing this message this week, I thought I could write a kind of passionate, poetic thing and, and go off on one about why Jesus is my King, and that's amazing. But there's a guy called S. M. Lockridge, and I'm sure you've heard the video before. You know, my King. You may know it, yeah. And, and we've heard it before, but I, I actually used that video during my second sermon I ever preached, um, and I watched it even recently, and it still moves me to tears. There's something about this video. S.M. Lockridge was an incredible preacher, and he, inspired by the Spirit, after um, preaching this powerful sermon, these words came to him. Yeah. 